Scott's been uh, leading uh, this church, Hilltop Wesleyan, through uh, 1 Corinthians, and specifically the last two Sundays, or three Sundays ago, uh, he went through 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6, which were a pretty heavy, heavy, uh, heavy passage of Scripture. They, um, well, they were heavy on me, at least. I think they are heavy on our culture. Um, chapter 5 dealt with sexual immorality, which uh, I think is a big issue in the church and in the world. And chapter 6 dealt with uh, lawsuits, but it also could just be disagreements. Uh, disagreements and lawsuits that were, were breaking apart uh, the church. That's also a pretty, a pretty weighty topic. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about uh, not a specific sin. So, I mean, I, I'm glad that Scott's been doing the heavy lifting and then going through these things that need to be discussed. But we're, I'm going to talk about the problem of sin in general and just how, as Christians, we're supposed to address that in the world when we, when we find sin, but also in our, in our own lives. That being said, uh, one of the parts of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 6 that Scott went over last week really stuck out to me. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, uh, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what we're going to talk about. Uh, like I said, we're not going to talk about a specific sin. We're going to talk about uh, sexual immorality, uh, adultery, idolatry, just, just the whole list of sins as we see them in the world, as we see it in our lives. And we're going to ask the questions, how as Christians do we fight against that? Because, you know, as Christians, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare, and we are supposed to fight, fight against that. Um, like I said, pretty weighty, pretty heavy, uh, that condemnation against the world and against people's sins in general. But before uh, I just leave you off on 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, I like how Scott um, really pounded this home uh, last Sunday. But I think the encouragement for us as Christians, as we're talking about, I want you to have this in your mind as we're talking about spiritual warfare, because it can get pretty uh, disheartening, <laughs> pretty depressing, honestly. But 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 11, after that, that passage where it deals with this person will not inherit the kingdom of God, this person will not inherit the kingdom of God, it just goes on the list. Verse 11 says, and that is what some of you were, so I could say that is what all of us were, uh, sinners. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So talking about spiritual battles, um, I want you to have that hope in your mind that uh, we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified, and we do have hope as Christians. Okay, that being said, I have, um, well, well, I guess we'll start off. If you want to go ahead and turn to me, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 6. So that was 1 Corinthians 6, now turn to Ephesians 6. And this will be the passage we're going to deal with today. It's actually at the very end of the letter. So Paul's already wrote in chapters 1 through 5 with problems in the church in Ephesus, uh, which we're not going to go over, but they are similar to the, what we've been reading in 1 Corinthians. And we're going to start in verse 10 in chapter 6. So this is Paul finishing off his letter. So he's not summarizing it as much as he's ending it with like a last hurrah and saying he's, he's encouraging the church. But I think also, I think Paul's and the Holy Spirit is writing this to encourage Paul himself, encouraging us as the reader. Because uh, after Ephesus, Paul only has 
uh, a few more months, a little less than a year, before he's going to be shipped off to Rome. And he's going to face his eventual execution. So I'm going to read uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through verse 20. And I think you'll see how Paul's trying to encourage the church, but he might also be trying to booster himself and trying to encourage himself for what he's about to face. Verse, starting in verse 10. The Word of God says, and the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Verse 14, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on, keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This is Paul encouraging himself, I think. He says, pray also for me, pray for Paul, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And the, the rest of chapter six goes on. It's Paul sending his, his final greetings. But I think uh, verses 10 through 20 are Paul's that's his focus. He's, he's really trying to uh, draw home that there's a spiritual battle going on in his life and just in the church, in his life, in the church, and in the world in general. And he's encouraging us and telling us how we were supposed to be equipped as Christians to fight, to fight sin, which is what um, we're going to be talking about today. When it comes to spiritual battle, I have uh, four rules that I think if Christians apply them into their lives, it will help equip them. We're going to talk a lot about equipping today. It will equip Christians to, to fight and to keep standing. The first one, so rule number one in a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare, whatever you want to call it, is to be strong in the Lord. That's what Paul said in uh, that first verse we read, verse 10. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I think uh, sometimes as Christians, well, I think this is just a, a human problem. Maybe for some people it's a bigger problem than others because it deals with pride. And I think when some, are we good? Oh, sorry, my bad. <laughs> I think that sometimes as Christians, uh, when, we, when we become Christians, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, but we still face the, the temptations and we still face the problem of sin that we had in our lives before we became Christians. Okay, so we are now equipped with the Holy Spirit, but we're still facing sin. How are we gonna handle it? Because we know as Christians, we are supposed to, to not sin. We're supposed to follow the example of Christ, okay? So I think a problem that some Christians have, problem that I've had, again, I think this problem that uh, everyone has had at one point or another, in one situation or another, is that we rely on our own strength and that we think when we're faced with a temptation, I have to depend on myself to resist it. 
And I think some Christians think that, or they don't sense the Holy Spirit in their life working to help them come overcome temptation, overcome sin. Uh, just thinking, thinking of an example, um, we talked a lot about sexual morality and adultery in 1 Corinthians 5. When someone is faced with sexual immorality, I, I think what the culture teaches and what some Christians have like came to believe is that you have to say no, and it's all up to you to say no. And if you don't say no, then the, the blame's all on you if you fall into adultery. And the blame is, uh, I mean, you, you don't accept any of the blame if you don't fall into adultery. And we just forget uh, the power of the Lord, and the Lord is supposed to be the one that we rely on and not ourselves. Uh, for, I'm gonna, you don't have to turn there with me, but I'm going to go through a lot of passages of Scripture this morning. Um, 1 Peter uh, 5, 8, 9 Paul uh, mentions the enemy because we're going to talk about, if we're talking about a spiritual battle, there has to be like two sides. You can't really fight with yourself. You have to have the good and the bad. So if the Lord is good, we have an enemy, which um, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 reads. Um, Paul, Peter says, uh, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm, they're standing, standing firm in the faith, because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So Peter identifies, like the rest of Scripture, that there is an enemy, and he's prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking to, to, seeking to devour you, to destroy you. And we're going to talk about, well, the, the first fact is that there is an enemy, and that if we're going to overcome it, we have to take the first rule into our hearts and our minds that if we're going to defeat the enemy, we have to have the Lord. In the same way that... Um, we're like ants. I mean, we're, we're physical beings that we, we can be harmed, like physically. Like if I, if I fall, I can like stub my toe. I can be bruised. Satan can't be bruised. Satan can't stub his toe. So when Satan goes against you, Satan will win. But in the same way that when God goes against Satan, Satan can't hurt God. It was always going to beat Satan. So if we rely on our own strength to fight Satan, you will ultimately lose. But if we rely on the Lord, Satan will ultimately lose. He always does. Um. I was going to ask, uh, where, where does your strength come from? We're talking about if you aren't being strong in the Lord, where are you being strong in? I think some Christians, when they're new Christians and they first become Christians, they think the church has it all figured out. And so they think, if, if I come to church and I get connected into the vine, which, which we should as Christians, that somehow me being at church is going to help me overcome, overcome sin. And that's where a lot of people get um, jaded, I think. And they say that the church is just a bunch of hypocrites because they come to realize pretty soon that coming to church doesn't just resolve you of the sin problem. And that people inside the church, like pastors, uh, worship teams, everyone, is still dealing and battling with sin. And it's because if you rely on the church or the body of Christ that, to help you overcome sin, the church is going to fail <laughs> sometimes. Um, so relying on the church is not where we should be relying on. I said uh, some people rely on their family. Um, not the spiritual family, your, your earthly family. I, when I have issues, like I always call my mom and dad first, or my, my, my oldest younger brother, Andrew, and we're really close. But the problem is that like my family fails sometimes too. And if you're relying on, your, if you're relying on the church and the church fails you, and you turn to your, your family and your family fails you, some people ultimately turn to themselves. And that's what I started off by saying is that we're supposed to be strong in Christ. Some people put that all on themselves and they think, if I'm falling to sin, it's my fault. If I'm not falling to sin, it's because I'm such a strong Christian. 
But in fact, if you don't fall to sin, if you, if you do fall to sin, it, 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 we have to rely on Christ. That's pretty much what I'm saying. I got to fall into the groove of it. Uh, sorry, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> For, uh, first, uh, I, I wanted to read, um, talking about being strong in the Lord, uh, Isaiah 43. You, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it real quick. Isaiah 43, 1 to 3, I think deals with um, what being strong in the Lord looks like. Um, God, it's God speaking to Israel. And Pastor Scott likes to say, truthfully, that um, the church is the new Israel in the sense that when God was speaking to Israel in the Old Testament, that can apply to the church today because we're just as much the children of Abraham if we believe in God and have faith as the children of Israel were. So this is God speaking to the church, speaking to Israel. He says, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, uh, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So I, I think that pretty much sums it up, that we need to be strong in the Lord, because in our own strength, rivers will overcome us, and uh, when we face fires, we will be burned. Uh, I think the best example that comes is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament. They dealt with spiritual battles, but also a, a physical battle against King Nebuchadnezzar. And they were ultimately put in the flames, which hopefully none of us will have to deal with. And if they had relied on their own strength, they would have burned. They, they would have burned up. Nothing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have done to stop from being burned up in a fire. But when they relied on the Lord and they had their strength in the Lord, then the Lord is what saved them. So I think some people... Unfortunately, when they do overcome a temptation, when they overcome a sin, they leave out the glory of God, and they say, like, because I have such strong faith, like, I overcame this. And that's ultimate, that's folly. That's failure. Okay. The second rule. So that was the first rule for spiritual warfare is to be strong in the Lord. If you're not strong in the Lord, you can kind of, like, walk out the door. Like, the rest of it's not going to mean anything. Because if you apply the other stuff to your life, but your faith and your hope and your strength isn't coming from the Lord, you're ultimately just going to fail unfortunately. Uh, the second rule, so the first rule is to be strong in the Lord. The second rule, talking about spiritual battle and fighting sin, we need to aim. That's the second rule, is to aim. If we continue reading uh, in Ephesians 6, um, <laughs> Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, so struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Um, there are Christian catchphrases out there. When I say Christian, Christian catchphrases, you may not know what I'm talking about, but one of them, I think, is to lo love the sinner but hate the sin, or hate the sin and love the sinner. So that, ver that, that, that saying itself is not found in the Bible. You can't go to that verse in Scripture to uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. But I think this epitomizes it, to we struggle against flesh and blood. We, we do not struggle against flesh and blood. What that's saying is when we see sin in our own lives, we need to hate the sin and not hate ourselves for having that temptation. When we see sin in other people's lives, we need to hate the sin that they're committing or the sin that they're facing, but not hate them. When we see sin in the world around us, we need to hate the sin itself and not the advocators for it because we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the powers behind it which is uh, pretty scary. Um, 
I think there are two ways that you can take this. Or sometimes in Sunday school, we talk about the pendulum, and we talk about uh, church history sometimes and how <laughs> uh, the Bible will teach a truth, like a fundamental truth. And if you, like, follow through church history, people take it to one extreme, and then people take it to the other extreme. It just keeps going back and forth every, every few hundred years. And it's pretty, it's pretty funny to watch. And then you can, like, apply it to where we are today, and you can see the two extremes swinging back and forth. The one extreme... Uh, taking, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, rulers and authorities, is that there are demons in every corner. I know some people like this. Um, <laughs> some people think, uh, and maybe rightfully so, that there are demons and uh, demonic dark forces that are causing them to be tempted. Or perhaps it's causing someone else to be tempted. Or any, any evil that is perceived in the world, it's because there's a demonic and evil force behind it. You may, you may have heard uh, some people, again, I'm not, I'm not judging more of the other. I, I'm saying, I don't know. But some people think uh, the COVID, the, the COVID virus, uh, that has a demonic or an evil force behind it. Maybe so. Some people look at tyrannical, author, tyrannical authorities, tyrannical governments. Uh, China comes to mind, a, a dictatorial society that is obviously evil. They're doing evil things. And they think there is like an evil force behind it. So it's not just the people, there's an evil force behind it. And I think people go too extreme when they see that in every single thing that happens in their life. So if you are married and you face a sexual morality, like you feel the temptation to sin against your wife by, by cheating on her, that could just be because you're, you are a sinful person and you experience temptations and not because there is a demonic force that's putting these thoughts into your brain. The other extreme uh, that I think people take is that nothing is, nothing is the mind. There's no evil force. We read about in 1 Peter 5 where Paul talks about that there is an enemy and he's prowling about like a roaring lion seeking to destroy you. Some people just want to ignore that verse. Say there's not really an enemy or that Satan and these, these demonic possessions in the New Testament and a lot of stories in the Old Testament of these like evil malicious gods and spirits that are working against Israel, that these are all metaphorical and that it's not an actual dark force. It's more just people that are fighting against the people of Israel, and that today, or in the New Testament, that the Roman Empire was fighting against the Christians. So it was, a, it was an earthly battle, but there was nothing really spiritual about it. I think that's a mistake, too, because, like, there is. There, the Bible teaches that there is, like, an enemy. And the middle ground that I think we eventually have to come to is that we have to have discernment. I was going to mention um, just to fight against, I, I think in our culture, like I said, we, we Two extremes. We, and our culture keeps switching back and forth, back and forth, every few hundred years. I think in the extreme we're in now is that people want to dismiss any spirituality. When it comes to Christianity, when it comes to, to New Ageism, people love spirituality and crystals and witchcraft and all this stuff. When it comes inside the church, people want to dismiss the idea of demonic activity. But uh, the Bible's full of it. In uh, Daniel chapter 10, I think it's pretty interesting. Daniel is... Uh, He's an Israelite, but he's exiled. So he's kicked out of Israel, and he's in, he's in Persia right now. And he's being persecuted. And so he's praying, praying to God for deliverance, or praying just for a word of God. He's, he's praying to God. And an angel eventually comes to Daniel. And, and the angel tells Daniel in uh, Daniel chapter 10 that he would have came earlier, but the prince, of Urza, the prince of Persia delayed him 21 days. It's pretty interesting. So... An, an angel, like a spiritual, a spiritual being on the positive side, on, on God's side, trying to assist a human, kind of like in our position, 
and he was delayed by, like, the Prince of Persia. So a spiritual force was delayed by, like, a physical force. I think the explanation for this, and I think this really does apply to us today, is that the spiritual and the physical are, are very closely connected. The, there's, there's two, like, main passages that talk about Satan in the Bible, and one of them, Ezekiel 28, is one of the most famous ones. Uh, a prophet is, is denouncing the king of Tyre. And you're like, okay, because the king of Tyre is doing evil things against Israel. But when you start reading in Ezekiel 28, he talks about the king of Tyre falling from heaven like a, like a star, and how he's like on the earth, like fire. and He's talking about the king of Tyre, but he's talking about Satan. And, and the reason behind this is because there was a physical human being who was the king of Tyre. But there was a spiritual force working in the king of Tyre to work against Israel. So I think in Daniel 10, we see an example of that, of a physical person. So a person who, who's in charge, a ruler or authority, who's just a human, like, like me and you. But there's a, an evil, demonic, spiritual force behind them that's working against Christians. Um, 2 Kings 6, uh, you guys might, I did a sermon a while ago on like the siege in 2 Kings 6 and the three blind, the, the three lepers who eventually come, I don't know if you remember or not, but uh, before that, before the, the siege that happens, in 2 Kings 6, um, you have Elijah and a servant. And Elijah was denouncing this one king because he was working against Israel, working against God. And so the king sent an army to go capture and kill Elijah. So Elijah and his servant go run in this tower. So Elijah and the servant are in a tower that's surrounded by this army that wants to kill them. And the servant is freaking out because he thinks they're about to die. And Elijah uh, prays to God that God would open his servant's eyes so he could see like the full picture. And God, God allows it. God opens Elijah's servant's eyes. And finally he sees that, yeah, Elijah and the servant are in a tower. And yeah, there's a human army around them that's trying to kill them. But around that army is a spiritual army of angels. And if you continue reading uh, 2 Kings 6, the army of angels overcomes the people and they, they blind the army and Elijah and the servant are free. The point of this, the, the point of this is that we're physical beings, but there is a spiritual realm and there's spiritual enemies working against us. And that's why we need to aim. So again, uh, hating the sin, not the sinner. When we see sin in our own lives, we need to hate the sin, but not hate ourselves. Sometimes Christians, I think, when they, I, I, this applies to, to everyone, I think. We all fall to sin eventually, every once in a while. Hopefully, if you're a Christian, you overcome that sin eventually and that you repent and come back to Christ. That's the ultimate goal. But you will fall to sin in your life. You already have fallen to sin in your life. And when you do, it's easy to, to hate yourself because you sinned. And that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to hate ourselves. We're called to overcome that and hate the sin. Hate the sin, not the sinner. Aim. Okay. First rule, be strong in the Lord. Uh, second rule to spirits about it is we need to, to aim. So fight sin, not sinners. Third one, uh, we need to be equipped. We need to be equipped with the armor of God. I'm gonna continue read. I'm, I already read it. But I'm gonna reread um, Ephesians 6 where it's talking about the armor of God and Paul's telling Christians to be equipped to fight. In verse 13 he says, uh, therefore Christians, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and it will come, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. Uh, then with the, the, okay, so this is where he's talking about the, the being equipped. So pay attention. <laughs> um, stand firm then with the belt of truth. So we have a, a belt of truth buckled around your waist. 
with a breastplate of righteousness, so the, the armor of righteousness, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So we got sandals of peace. Verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, and then take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So I, if I can count, I think there are six there. So we have six things that Christians need to be equipped with if we're going to fight spiritual battles. Well, I say if we fight spiritual battles, but we're currently like in a spiritual battle. I think some people that are listening to me right now that are, are sitting here are undergoing a spiritual battle. I don't think you're always in a spiritual battle. I think sometimes you can be at peace, but just that's how life works. You, there is an enemy and he'll work against you and our sinful nature works against us too and the world itself uh, works against us. And so ultimately we'll, we will always face spiritual battles until the day we die. So how can we fight this? How can we fight um, spiritual battles? The first one is uh, we need to have equipped around our waist the belt of truth. I thought this was pretty interesting. When I, when I heard belt of truth, I think like, like a belt like that holds up your pants. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about a belt that holds up your pants. He's talking about like a warrior's belt. And so like for the Romans, a belt, think more like a, a utility belt. Think like Batman's utility belt. So it's not just a belt to hold up Batman's pants. It's, it holds all of Batman's stuff. So when you're a Roman soldier, your belt holds your sword. You can strap on your shield. It has, that, it has all of your tools. So the reason why it's the belt of truth, I think, is because if you do not have truth, as your foundation. We talked about you had to be strong in the Lord, but if you don't know the truth, if you can't perceive and discern truth, then you can't even be strong in the Lord because you don't know what the Lord's will is. You don't know what the word of the Lord is. So that's why the belt of truth is so important because if you don't have truth, you're automatically going to be confused. Um, I'm talking about what we need to do to be equipped as Christians, but I'm also going to briefly talk about some of the weapons that the enemy uses and the kind of opposites. It makes sense. Um, God wants us to be equipped with truth, but the enemy fights us with confusion. So like I said, truth needs to be our foundation because if you don't know what's true, then the enemy is going to attack you with confusion and then you'll be way off course. I think that's how some people, when you look at the, the we talked about sin in ourselves, also sin in the world, there are things being promoted in the world right now that with a Christian uh, worldview, you look at it and say, this is, ob- this is obviously wrong. This is extremely wicked. But you see the people in the world are supporting it and advocating it. I think this is because like, they, they don't have the truth. And the enemy attacks with confusion. And when you don't have truth and you're attacked with confusion, you can go way off course really quickly. So the enemy fights with confusion, but we need to be equipped with the belt of truth. The second one, uh, the breastplate of righteousness. This could be a whole, this could be a whole sermon on itself. The breastplate of righteousness. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read... I think this exemplifies what the breastplate of righteousness is in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Uh, you can jot it down if you want. You I'm just going to be there for one second. But 2 Corinthians 5, 21, um, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So he's talk, talking about Jesus. So God made him who had no sin to be sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we, the church, everyone who believes in him, might become the righteousness of God. So I talked a little earlier about, as Christians, we're equipped with the Holy Spirit, and we need to be equipped with all the things that we're talking about right now, but we still face sin, and sometimes we're going to fall to sin. And when we do, I've already, I already, I already talked about this before, 
we experience guilt and shame, which I think is appropriate. Sometimes God can use guilt in our life as a conviction to turn us back to him. But sometimes guilt isn't used in that positive sense. It's used in the negative sense where we think, oh, woe is me. Like, I, I failed this time. I failed last time. I'm going to fail next time. I'm going to keep failing, and I, I don't have victory in Christ. Like, I know that the pastor, I know the Bible says, like, the Holy Spirit's working in me, but I don't feel that way because I keep failing to the same thing over and over again. And then you wonder, like, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? This is the enemy using uh, guilt and hopelessness and, and doubt against you as weapons. But as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, God came in the form of man, Jesus Christ, and died. He, he who knew no sin died on the cross for our sins. It's the reason why Christ, the one of the many reasons why Christ's sacrifice is so important is because it makes us righteous. And so when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, it's not just a symbolic thing or us pretending. Like it's, not us, it's not Christians faking it till they make it, <laughs> faking being righteous. We really do have the righteousness of Christ and we need to act like it. Now, of course, we'll fail, but you need to keep strapping on the breastplate of righteousness knowing that Christ's sacrifice had power in your life. As we sang earlier, there's power, power in the blood. There really is. So we fight with righteousness. The enemy fights with shame, shame and guilt. The third, the third thing uh, in Second Corinthians, or first, first Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, is the sandals of peace. This is maybe my favorite one. It's because I, th- I thought it was pretty cool. I could do a sermon on, on all six. I mean, this is like, I probably talked about, I think it took too much so I could handle, too much to chew. The sandals of peace, um, I think instead of thinking, kind of like with the belt, how Paul isn't talking about a belt that holds up your pants, he's talking about like a warrior's belt. When Paul's talking about like the, like the sandals of peace that like will keep you ready when uh, evil comes, don't think like, like tennis shoes or, or even like sandals. I said sandals of peace. And think of like cleats. The, the Romans, this is kind of going into history, so out, outside of biblical, biblical sources, but historians, a lot of them argue the reason why the Roman Empire was like so successful was because they had these like awesome shoes. <laughs> that um, It was kind of like they had nails. They would put nails in the shoes so that when you were standing in formation, you just kind of like dug down. And so when the enemy came and like charged you, like you could be knocked over, but your feet would still be standing. So you just kind of like, Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. You just pop back up. I think that is really what, what Paul's talking about here, that we need to have sandals of peace. A good earthly example, this, again, outside of the Bible, but an example of Christians, not in our age, it was in 1960, so I guess that's sort of in some of your ages, but uh, 1960. Have any of you heard of the, the Freedom Riders? I mean, I learned about it in high school, so probably some of you had. The Freedom Riders, they were these a group of people, a lot of people, in 1961, I think, May 30th, 1961, is when they made their first big move down. People that came from all over the world, or all over America mainly, but also other parts of Africa came too, to go into like the deep south where there was segregation, the Jim Crow laws, all, all this nastiness, all this racist things that were going on against the African-American community. And they would go to these places intentionally to fight against segregation there's this, uh, I'm, I'm from North Carolina, and there's this little diner in Graham. It's still famous because it's, it's more of a museum now than an actual restaurant because the way they had it kind of like today where they had the kitchen and this little serving area, and they had the booths. And African-Americans weren't allowed to sit on the booths. They had to sit, like, in this little back section area. 
what the Freedom, Freedom Riders did was they would intentionally come to like this diner and places all around the South and sit in this booth and would not be moved. People would come and uh, physically abuse them. They'd spit on them, slap them, try to knock them out of the chairs, and they would just get back up and sit down. And the cool part, the really cool part, and this is why the sandals of peace, is because in training, so these, these free riders trained to do what they were doing. In training, they would do exactly what they knew was going to be done to them. So they, they would sit down, and they'd have their friends slap on them, spit them, knock them over, punch them, physically abuse them. And if anyone reacted violently, so if anyone reacted by, like, knocking them back to them, they were kicked out. You couldn't be a freedom rider. If you were going to be a freedom rider, you had to be tested and come through with non, nonviolence. And the reason was that when they faced these situations, if you fought back, you'd be killed. Or if you fought back, you would destroy the cause. And so the Christian cause, we need to be peaceful. I know that seems contradictory, but uh, talking about spiritual warfare and then the sandals of peace. But the sandals of peace, think freedom riders, how they were in physical battle. But I think they were also in spiritual battle. Another cool just tidbit of fact is that a lot of the freedom riders, I mean, like 99% of them had religious affiliations. So you had like the Yale Divinity School. That's where the freedom riders started. Um, you had like the Episcopal, like, clergymen. So Episcopal pastors were coming and they were freedom riders. Like I said, 99% of them were people in ministry that were trying to make a difference. So again, think sandals of peace. Awesome. The enemy fights with hatred. So the enemy's tool is always hatred. And everything, the shame, doubt has to do with hatred. Confusion has to do with hatred. Shame has to do with hatred. The enemy fights with hatred, but we as Christians are equipped with peace. And that's how we fight back against hatred. Next thing. So we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of peace, the shield of faith. Okay, now we're getting into the, the, the fun stuff. These other ones are more garments. You have like the belt of truth, seems kind of passive. You have the breastplate of righteousness, also kind of passive, just like armor. Sandals, pretty passive, it helps you stand. But now we're getting to fighting back, I think, uh, partly. And uh, in 1 Ephesians 6, he says, and in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. I talked about before when I talked about the pendulum and some people seeing demons everywhere and some people don't even think there are demons, there even is an enemy. Uh, we sometimes face temptation and sin in our life and it's just because we're human. Like that's just a sinful human nature. But sometimes the enemy really does like attack you. Uh, and it can be physical, like you can be... Uh, think some things that happen in the world, like uh, a car crash could be a demonic, like oppression that it, like, it costs something to happen. Even COVID, I'm not going to weigh in on that subject, but I, I, I would be open to the idea that COVID is a spiritual attack, or there's a spiritual force behind it. And if we're supposed to have the shield of faith, our faith is what defends us against these things. I think an important thing to point out is that we need to be fully equipped as Christians so if we, if we just have the belt of truth, and you know for a fact what's true and what's not true, but you don't have all these other things, you're going to fail. <laughs> if you have the breastplate of righteousness, I, pro I know and I accept I have the righteousness of Christ, but you don't, you don't know the truth of Christ, and you don't have faith, you're going to fail. I think this is important when it comes to the shield of faith. Some people wield faith like a sword and less like a shield, and they just slice down other people. But if we're equipped with the belt of truth and the sandal of peace and the breastplate of righteousness, the shield is what is going to be our shield our shield, and defend us against these uh, demonic attacks. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, Galatians 2.20. Uh, I, I was finding verses that just, like, help exemplify and, like, 
just examples of other parts in Scripture that are backing up Scripture. I think Galatians 2.20 is one that um, exemplifies faith. Galatians 2.20 reads, oh, I'm in the wrong spot. For though the law, or for through the law, this is Paul writing, for through the law I died to the law so that I may, might live for God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. So faith is our shield that helps defend us against these like demonic attacks. And not because you can prevent what's going to happen. Like I said, sometimes this manifests in physical ways. Some people get uh, physically ill. Like I said, car crashes, COVID, like all, all these things could be demonic attacks. And the way that Christians fight back against it isn't by like being cured of COVID or by stopping a car crash. These could happen. I think what mostly, most often happens is that when the, these things happen, if we have faith in Christ, we're no longer affected by what a demon can do in our life because we know that we have an ultimate help, hope in Christ, an ultimate hope in Christ. And that's why we live by faith. And faith is the, uh, the backbone, I think, of a Christian. If you don't have faith as a Christian, then you aren't a Christian. <laughs> that's the truth. But when you don't have faith, like, you can be, you're dead. The, the, the book of James talks about this, where uh, you say that uh, you have faith, but you have no works. And James ultimately weighs in and says, like, your faith is dead. So we need to uh, have the belt of truth. That's true. The breastplate of righteousness, true. Sandals of peace and the shield of faith. Because when we're attacked with doubt and hopelessness, the only combat against that is faith. Okay. Helmet of salvation. Two more. You're, you're tracking along right with me. I, I appreciate it through my stumbling. <laughs> helmet of salvation. What is the helmet of salvation? Um, I actually, this is just Timothy's thoughts. I don't know if this is what Paul's intention was, but I think the coolest thing about, like, the ancient armor was the helmet because of, like, the big, big plume. I always thought that was so cool. And the reason they had those plumes was so when you were fighting, you could tell who the, who the commanders were. Because when there's a whole group of people fighting and, like, people start throwing swords and you have arrows flying through the sky, you need something that's big and, like, puffy so you can, like, know what's what. But another reason they had the big plumes was so that you can know who was your ally and who was your enemy. Because when the battle actually started and, and body parts were flying and, and blood was spurting out everywhere, you had to see the big red plume to know that's your friend. You had to have the big black plume to know that's your enemy. So I think the helmet of salvation, uh, well, obviously salvation is, is what makes us Christians. And when we put on the helmet, you can identify other Christians from, from enemies. Because uh, I know some people don't like to, I mean, I'm not saying to, to hate, I'm, I already said to hate the sin, not the sinner. But there are people who are working against Christianity or working against the church and the people themselves are our enemy, but the force behind them is our enemy. And we need to identify who's for us and who's against us in the world because there's two forces working, and we need to identify that. What is the helmet? Of, if that's what the salvation, helmet of salvation does, it helps us identify ally, enemy. It also protects us. Um, you can get hit in the arm and, like, keep fighting. You can get hit in the leg, or at least you can survive. Uh, you can be, like, brutally wounded physically or spiritually and keep going, but if your head, head is hit, you're dead. Like think David and Goliath, like one little stone right in the right spot, he's out, he's done. So I think the helmet of salvation, the reason why the helmet is of salvation is because if, 
it protects who we are as Christians and our identity. If you don't have the helmet of salvation on, you're gonna, you're gonna lose in battle pretty quickly because the enemy's just gonna wipe you out because you don't have the firm foundation, the solid rock, as scripture says, of Christ. Uh, what is the spirit of the helmet of salvation, though? I remember uh, when I was at SWU, um, we, had a, a, we had a hermeneutics class, which is basically just like the art of preaching. And we're, we're learning like how to, you need to know all this stuff. It was just the practice of preaching and how to be like the most efficient when you're preaching the word of God. And uh, I asked, doc, uh, Dr. Black taught the class, but also uh, Dr. Andrea Summers did as well. I can't remember who was there that, that day. But when it, we talked at the very beginning of the class about preaching the gospel message, and I think I wasn't even thinking, I think I just asked, I was like, do you always have to preach, like, the gospel when you're preaching? Like, do I always have to talk about, like, Jesus' like, life and Jesus' like, death on the cross and Jesus' like, burial and Jesus' resurrection? Because that takes up a, a good amount of time. So if I were to preach that every sermon, then that's like 30 minutes right there, and I'm done. So I have one sermon, I'll preach every Sunday. And... I remember the teacher, I don't know if it was Dr. Black or uh, Miss Summers. Um, she stood there, or he stood there for a moment, and he answered me that you don't always have to preach the life of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, um, the resurrection of Jesus, and the salvation we have from Jesus. But when you preach Scripture, Scripture will always point back to it. And so this sermon isn't about Jesus' like, crucifixion on the cross and what it meant to us, but it kind of does. And so even though you've heard it a million times, what is the helmet of salvation? It's what I've already been talking about, that God came down in the form of man. So God came down as Jesus, which uh, that's pretty unusual, but he lived a human life, which isn't unusual. Like me, I'm a human, you're a human, we, all, we are all currently living the human life. But when Jesus lived the human life, he lived it without sin. Not without temptation, he experienced temptation, but he overcame it in every situation. And he eventually died on the cross as a sinless sacrifice. So if me and you died for someone else's sins, it wouldn't mean anything because we ourselves would be sinful. Hopefully none of us die on the cross. That would be a pretty grisly end. But if you did, it'd be because you deserved it, which is a, a brutal truth in Christianity. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice because he didn't deserve it. And he took up our sins. We talked about the breastplate of righteousness. He took up our sins and died for us. He was buried for three days and he eventually conquered sin and death and ever came. He was resurrected. And so the helmet of salvation is Christians accepting Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' conquering of the death, conquering of our deaths as well, and just acknowledging that and rising with him too. Uh, there's one song, it's called, it's called Christ Be Magnified. And I, I usually just skip the first two minutes of it and go to like the, the very end part because it talks about, um, you guys should, I'll, I'll leave that for you. That's, that could be a homework assignment. You guys look up Christ Be Magnified. This, I don't know, if you, a lot of people sing it. And just listen to that song. It's pretty, it's an awesome song. Christ be magnified. But yeah, uh, helmet of salvation, we need to accept the salvation that we receive through Jesus Christ. Last thing, the sword of the Spirit. Uh, the sword of the Spirit. Um, in Ephesians, Paul is emphasizing standing. And even when I read Second Peter, Paul talks about the enemy and to stand, like to stand firm in the faith. And so there's a lot of standing. And the reason for that, I think, is, is pretty clear to us, like, intuitively, is because the enemy is so great and powerful compared to us that we, 
we, you can't harm Satan. Like, you can't hurt Satan. Satan attacks you. You can't, like, suck him back to him. Like, you can't do that to Satan. Um, so that's why we're called to stand. So when you do face sin and we face temptation, all that you're required to do is just to, to get back up and keep standing afterwards. We're not supposed to defeat sin. Jesus did that for us. But we are called to fight as well. I think some Christians read Ephesians 6 and like verses like 2 Peter and think that uh, we're just playing this like defensive role and that we just gotta keep standing and that at no point do we go on the offensive and, and ta- attack. And I think that's false and that's why uh, Paul says we should be equipped with the sword of the spirit because we are called to stand and fight. If we aren't, uh, and some Christians don't think we are called to, to fight back against sin, then I don't think we can see any change in the world. Um, that's why, that's one thing I like about uh, Pastor Scott is uh, he, he thinks, I gotta be careful with it. He, I think he agrees with me in thinking and saying that we need to go out into the world and actually interact with people who are against God because we want to see an active change in the world. To do that, you have to fight. Like, it, it's a battle. It's confrontation. I know a lot of people, the majority of people do not, do not like confrontation, do not like fighting, physically or even, like, intellectually, like, arguing with someone, and I can understand that. But as Christians, if we want to see a change in the world, then we need to be equipped with the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God in our hearts and in our minds, and also, like, uh, through the Word of God. And that's how we attack, attack back. I thought this is pretty interesting. Do, do any of you know the, the state motto of the United States? Ah, yeah, e, e pluribus unum. E plur, do, do you know what e pluribus unum means? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so our state motto is e pluribus unum, ad many one. It's kind of understandable because... We were many states, but we kind of teamed up and we're like, we're going to fight together. It wasn't always our state motto. Uh, when they were writing the Declaration of Independence, there was debate because they were, they were trying to form our nation as it is today. And so they were arguing and like putting forth different state mottos, saying like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And one of the ones that was almost our state motto was proposed by Benjamin Franklin. And it was a quote by uh, John Knox, who was a Scottish missionary. His whole life is amazing. If you read the story of Scott Knox, of John Knox, it's awesome. But the John Knox quote that Benjamin Franklin wanted to be our state motto was, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. The reason why it ultimately wasn't was because they thought it was too uh, spiritual. They, they wanted a more, a more secular state motto for our country, for our, our, our country, the United States. But I think that's, an exemplary, I think that is something we need to strive for as Christians, that if we are going to say that we're equipped with the whole armor of God, then that means that when we face sin in our own life, because people are fine with that. People are fine with talking about sin in their own lives and how they need to deal with that. But we also need to look to other people and to, to sin in the world as a whole and say, that's not right. It doesn't mean fighting the person, but it means resisting tyranny, resisting evil. So that's not something that uh, people like to talk about. But I think if we're equipped with the sword of the Spirit, then we should use it. <laughs> and we need to use it as Christians. The last thing, I, now, I, now I really am almost done. Um, I wish, I'm not gonna, this is bad of me. I'm not gonna be able to do this justice. But the last tool, or the last rule, I would say. So the first rule to spiritual battle is to be strong in the Lord. The second, I think, rule we could get from Ephesians 6 
is to aim. We need to aim when we're, when we're fighting, who we're gonna fight and what we're fighting. The third thing that we need, the third rule for spiritual battle is we need to be equipped with the armor of God. And the fourth rule, which uh, may seem kind of like out of the blue, is, is prayer. So, I, I mean, when we're talking about battle, being strong, being strong, I see how that has to do with battle. Aiming, I, I see how that has to do with battle. And putting on the armor of God, I, it's pretty clear how that has to do with spiritual battle. What, is, what does prayer have to do with spiritual battle? This is what I mean by I can't do this justice because prayer is such an important thing. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll try to do my best in the next like uh, two minutes or so. Uh, chapter six, verse 18 of Ephesians, Paul writes, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So Paul summarizes his whole book of Ephesians at the, at the very end, his, like, his closing statements, with prayer. And if you keep reading, he, he says to pray for him, that he, the Spirit would equip him to say what needs to be said. Um, I think the most clearest indicator that prayer is spiritual battle is for how hard it is. Prayer, if you take it lightly, can be super easy. That whenever you're in a hard time, I'm going to pray. I mean, that just makes sense. Like whenever I'm facing temptation, I'm going to pray. And whenever something really, really bad happens to me or to someone I love, then I'll pray. But praying all the time, having the lifestyle of prayer, that's hard for anybody. I know some people have the spiritual gift of prayer. I think that is a spiritual gift. They're like excellent prayers and they have not a stronger connection to God, but they have a stronger like, I think empathy towards others. They care so much they're gonna go to God in prayer for for others and for themselves. But just the, the act of praying is our connection to God. I think in, in a real sense. And that's why Christianity, well, no, I think, I, I think that is fair to say. I, th- I think Christianity is different from all the other religions because we have a God that is so close to us, so imminent in our lives that we can actually communicate with him at any, at any point, at any time right now. All the other religions of the world, they have like a deity, but he's super distant and you could pray to him, but it'd be, he's not gonna respond to you. He's not gonna listen to you. If you're lucky, he might listen. Or you have uh, religions and, and spiritual practices. You're trying to empty yourself and just, and just lose who you are. But in Christianity, you're made in the image of God, and God wants a personal relationship with you, and he wants to speak with you. And that's one of the many reasons, like I said, I can't do this justice. There's many reasons why prayer is important. One of them is because it's your lifeline to God. In the same way that the Holy Spirit's your lifeline to God, in the same way that the Word's your lifeline to God, in the same way that in some ways the church is your lifeline back to God. Okay, um, I, have, I have one more thing. I think it was on my heart to talk about, and then, then I will be done. I know we're already going a little bit over. Um, C.S. Lewis, I, I mean, he's probably my favorite theologian just because he's like so close to our time. He's dead now, but when you read other theologians, it's like hundreds of hundreds of years ago, and they're kind of distant from modern problems. But C.S. Lewis was alive during World War II. And so he wrote about the war, and he talked a lot about spiritual warfare. And in one book that he wrote called The Screwtape Letters, which I would recommend to, to anybody, it was a fictional story. But um, The Screwtape Letters, if I could summarize it real quick, is letters between demons. So The Screwtape Letter was a collection of letters between one demon and another demon. So one, one was a demon that was tempting the sky on earth and one was a demon in hell. And they were sending correspondences back and forth 
to try to help each other to destroy this person's life. They were trying to figure out what they could do to turn this person from Christ and ultimately see him in hell. That, that's what the letters were about. And the reason why C.S. Lewis wrote it was so that we could better understand how the enemy works against us and how we can, how we can overcome it. <laughs> C.S. Lewis was not a Satanist. He <laughs> was communing with demons. But at the end of the book, so at, in the epilogue of the Screwtape Letters, one of the demons is reflecting on just, on just the whole book. And he thinks, and he's kind of sad, that there are more sinners in hell now. There are more sinners suffering in hell with him, but they aren't as bad as they used to be. He reflects on, like, on, the, on the Hitlers. And he reflects on like the Charles VIII. He reflects on all these people in history who sinned, who were sinners, yeah. But they, like, they thrived and enjoyed sin. They actively liked sinning and just, just being as evil and wicked as they could. And the, the, the sinners that he found in hell today, they were still in hell, but they weren't as like strong sinners. Like, yeah, they fell into temptations, and yeah, they constantly sinned, and yeah, they didn't have the salvation of Christ, but they were just kind of lukewarm. And that just a little more, and they could have become Christians, a little less. They, they just didn't care. And so the demon was sad. I think uh, if C.S. Lewis had, wrote in, had written a book with the, an angel's perspective, where two angels, an angel in heaven, an angel on earth, uh, commentating back and forth to each other, I, <laughs> I wonder what the angel in heaven's reflections would be at the end of the book. I think it would be similar, perhaps, in a sense, unfortunately, because I, I, could, I could see an angel saying that there may still be people being saved and entering heaven, but their faith wasn't as strong as it used to be. How the Christians in the past were just on fire for the Lord, and when they faced spiritual battles, like, they overcame, because they were equipped, because they knew who they were fighting. So I think, um, I think, what I want to be taken from today is that we're in a spiritual battle, not constantly, but incessantly. Like it will always face spiritual. If you're not in a spiritual battle now, then you will be, probably in the next hour or in a few days, who knows. And when we do, we need to be equipped and we need to overcome. And it's okay if you fall. Um, Scott made sure to make, make this known last night. I, I wanna be sure that I'm not giving you the wrong impression. It's okay to fail but it's not okay to keep failing. We need to stand back up. That's what Paul's saying, to stand firm. And I think when we do that, when we get to heaven, an angel will be able to reflect and say, the Christians from Hilltop Wesleyan Church, like, they were strong in the faith. And so, yeah, uh, some Christians are, are just barely entering heaven and just by the skins of their, skin of their back. But I think we need to be strong Christians. So that, uh, that being said, Roy, could you come forward? And we'll... Um, We'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. If you'd uh, bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, this morning my prayer for, for our church, uh, for, also for just the church at large, for your entire body of Christ, is that we would be fully equipped. Lord, uh, I want us to know what the truth is. I want us to be equipped with your righteousness. Lord, I want us to have the sandals of peace, the shield of faith. Lord, I want to have the sword of your spirit, the sword of your word, so that when we experience spiritual battle, we could fight back and we could stand firm in your word and in who you are and your sacrifice that you gave us through Jesus Christ. Lord, when we fall, I pray that Hilltop Westing Church will be able to pick up its members so that um, 
we are we aren't susceptible to the guilt and shame the enemy uh, heaps on top of us so that when we start sinning we don't fall away from the church but we just come even closer and we just keep uh, driving even further into your word so we can come closer to you God Lord we'll all experience death but I pray that when we die it'll be a doorway into everlasting life and that when, when we enter heaven you'll be able to say uh, well done my good and faithful servant Lord help Hilltop Wesleyan Church to equip other Christians to help uh, first to, to save the ones that are unsaved and to help us to have discernment to see the spiritual forces behind our world and to fight against them and not the people they're affecting. Lord, let us have hearts of mercy and have hearts of grace so that we can love people just as you already loved us. Lord, as you're in your name, I pray these things. I pray as we leave this morning, you would be with us. Lord, you are a God who loves us and a God who cares for us. But most importantly, you are a God who is with us. I pray that as we leave these doors, um, you would just make yourself known to us. It's your name I pray these things. Uh, in the power and the might of the name Jesus Christ, amen.